Our gospel reading this morning is from the book of Luke. And this is Luke uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. And Jesus sending out uh, the 72. Well, you'll see. Uh, Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day, and we thank you again for your word that you have given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we uh, hear your word read and proclaimed this morning. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand better who it is that you are, who it is that we are, Lord, how desperately it is that we need you, how desperately it is that the whole world needs you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who have ears to hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when, that's, that's, that's where we're stopping. It's so hard to stop. Okay. (laughs) You can read the rest later. Our New Testament reading is Acts 5, 1 to 11. This is in the very early days of uh, the new uh, church. And in Acts 5, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, you've probably heard me quote before, probably a lot of times, uh, what has been attributed to Mark Twain, although nobody can really uh, pin that down as actually coming from him. But it's the line that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. You've probably heard me quote it a lot because I really like it (laughs) as a way of uh, seeing how you don't have an actual replay of everything, but you do see an awful lot of similarity from one thing to the next. And um, this is something that, uh, that I have especially noticed in family life. And maybe you, you can relate in your own family. Uh, i got some of my family here today. And it's really been interesting as uh, you have, you know, you grow up with your brothers and sisters and then your brothers and sisters and you start having babies of their own and you start comparing well, how do these babies compare to how we were when we were babies? And as they continue to grow, it's the same kind of thing, and you're constantly doing this comparison. And they're never reliving what you lived, but there's always this kind of generational comparison and saying, oh, that's kind of like when so-and-so did this, or is, do you see how they're like uncle so-and-so? And like there's this uh, kind of generational echo <laughs> or rhyme and, you know, you can imagine in your own family, maybe even as you were growing up, the things that people would say about oh, how you're just like grandpa so-and-so, and you're like, no, I'm not, I'm my own person. <laughs> but there is a sense in which there are these things that, um, that kind of echo or kind of rhyme with what went before. And we are seeing this same kind of thing as we are reading Genesis. And we're going through the book of Genesis. We're seeing what happens in the beginning. And one of the things that we've noticed as we've been looking at the story of Noah is just how much the story of Noah rhymes with the story of Adam and Eve. It's not a replay. It's not the exact same thing. But there's so much in there uh, that does come back again and again. So we're going to be looking at this morning... Uh, Genesis 9, starting in verse 18, and then going on to chapter 10, verse 32. But before we even read it, I want you to be thinking again about, just refresh your memory about uh, what happened with Adam and Eve. So we were talking about the new creation. So if you go back to Genesis 1 and we look at everything that was formless and empty becoming formed and filled. So by the, at the beginning of Genesis 1, it's just kind of chaotic emptiness. <laughs> Can you have chaotic emptiness? Apparently. And then you get to the end, and it, everything has a place, a place for everything, and everything in its place. And this is uh, Genesis 1 in a nutshell. And then with Noah, we saw the same kind of thing after the flood. The flood takes us back to the beginning of Genesis 1, and then you go uh, from there on to you know, them coming out of the ark, and you have the land coming up out of the waters again. You have uh, people and animals on the land again. And it's the same kind of thing. It's that rhyming again. And so we see this uh, picture of new creation. Well, now Noah uh, and his family and the animals, they're all out of the ark. And we have seen God make a promise. Uh, This is what we looked at last week of not doing uh, that again, not taking us back to the beginning. But he will see this project forward all the way to the end, uh, even though the condition of the human heart has not changed. Now, what was the condition of the human heart 
uh, in the Garden of Eden. So we go back to uh, Genesis 2 and 3. With God, uh, uh, with Adam and Eve, creating them, it's very personal. There's a relationship there. And then in chapter 3, we see that breaks down. Because Adam and Eve try to take that which is not theirs to take. They do what they are not supposed to do. And it breaks the relationship between people and each other, between people and God, and between people and all creation. And that continues on. And uh, we see things as we go through that story where uh, we have... Well, just think about some of the elements of that story. They're in a garden. There is fruit. There is uh, taking what they're not supposed to take. There's a curse, there is nakedness, and there's a covering of that nakedness. And then there is a going out from Eden uh, into the big wide world. With that in mind, let's hear now Genesis 9, 18, verses 10 through 10, 32. After they come, (coughs) excuse me, after they come out of the ark, 9.18. 9.18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found that his young, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. This is where you're going to be tempted to tune out. Don't. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, uh, and Togormah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rodanites. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtahites, Pathrasites, Kaslahites, 
from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zimmerites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages, in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Meshech. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Amodad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerar, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Misha toward Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these nations spread out over the earth after the flood. All right, way to hang in there, by the way. Um, we are going to look at several things here. This is, I, I hope you heard it as we went through um, reading 9, 18 to 10 and 32, the, the echoes, the rhymes uh, from Adam and Eve. Did you hear it? How much there was? I even forgot to mention when it describes uh, Noah as being a man of the soil. Do you remember what Adam <laughs> means? It's the word for ground. <laughs> he's the one who's made from the dust of the earth. And, um, and so now Noah is introduced as, oh, by the way, he's a man of the soil. Oh, I get it. And then you go on with all of these rhymes with Adam and Eve. The, um, the taking what shouldn't be taken. The, uh, the nakedness. The, uh, the curse, the covering, the leaving uh, that area and spreading out into the world, and the brokenness. The brokenness between relationships and the brokenness within the whole family and the brokenness that comes in the whole world. These were things that are, you don't even know which story I'm talking about right now, do you? Is, is, this, is Adam and Eve? Is this Noah and his sons? It rhymes. There is an awful lot the same. Now, uh, one of the big questions, of course, when we were reading um, about the, the incident in the end of uh, chapter 9 is, okay, what exactly did Ham do? What exactly did Ham do? Does anybody know exactly what Ham did? So the, the way that's told, you have... Uh, Noah, who comes off the ark, plants a vineyard, and then uh, he says he, he proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk. Now, hold on. 
we seem to be compressing some time here, don't we? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with how long it takes plants to grow or then wine to be produced from said plants. <laughs> but it's not that you plant it and then immediately start drinking it. <laughs> There's some time here that's being compressed. And in fact, that's one of the things we see uh, throughout all of Genesis 1 to 11 is an awful lot of time being compressed in the way the story is told. Once we hit to chapter 12, it's almost like you just slam on the brakes and we spend a lot of time with just one guy. But between uh, 1 and 11, you're just compressing time and hitting a lot of the highlights. And so this is one of those where, uh, or low lights as the case may be, um, where you have Noah planting a vineyard, drinking the wine, becoming drunk, and laying uncovered inside his tent. And then it says that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. And this is apparently a really big deal. What does it mean? I mean, like, what, what did he do? There are basically four main options here that people have gone with over the years, and there are various ways of kind of arguing for that. Um, the, the short version is he did something he shouldn't have done <laughs> that was really bad. Here are the four options, though. Um, one is he just looked at Noah being naked. And so, I don't know, maybe like the pointing and laughing kind of, I don't know. And that is an easy way to get, I mean, it's easy to get there because you look at this and it says, oh, he saw him naked. So why are we even asking the question? He saw him naked. End of story. But there are actually three other options. And when I say them out loud, you are going to say, oh, where in the world do people get this kind of stuff? But here are the other three options. One is that uh, he castrated his father. Two is that he somehow sexually assaulted his father. Or three, that he somehow sexually assaulted his mother. And you're like, people just make good stuff up now. (laughs) None of that is even in here. It's not even close to that. He saw him naked. How hard can this be? Um, And one of the things we have to remember when we get to something like this is... uh, one of, the, one of the lines, I think it's John Walton that kind of made this line famous. I don't know if he made it up, but uh, it's the line that we have to remember that the Bible is written for us, but it was not written to us. And so uh, one of the easy ways to remember this is just remember it wasn't written in English, and in fact the Bible was written before English was even a language as hard as it is to even comprehend a time when, Engl- when English didn't exist as a language. But that is the case. And so the way that people said things is different than the way that we say things. And you can notice this also if you look at a lot of different translations. You will see as they translate into English, some will try to stick more with, okay, well, how did they say it in Hebrew? And then others will say, well, how would we say the same thing today in English? And so you kind of get those sort of parallels. And... um, And one of the places that you see this is in uh, Leviticus 18, everyone's favorite chapter. This is uh, in kind of this Levitical holiness code uh, that we get coming from uh, Mount Sinai and uh, the Lord saying to Moses, here's how the people are to be living uh, as the Israelites as they go into the promised land, etc. In chapter 18, 
is all about uh, sexual relations and how that is to go or not go, as the case may be. And, uh, and so you have things like verse 6 and 7 and 8, where it says, No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Aren't you glad you came today? That seems pretty straightforward and fairly common sense. <laughs> However, that is, a, uh, that is a translation into the way that we would say things. If you go with something that's more of the kind of word for word, how it would have been said in Hebrew, uh, I was reading from the NIV in the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it reads, same three verses, six, seven, and eight. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Do you hear the difference? That's not how we talk. But apparently, that is how they talked in Hebrew. And in fact, when it comes to uh, sex, even in modern English, you could probably off the top of your head think of 10 different ways that we say it without saying it. That's just one of those things that always gets talked around and alluded to. And this is the way that they would do that in Hebrew. It was uncovering their nakedness. And in fact, uh, oh, there it is on the back of the page. Then when you get to Leviticus uh, 20, 17, uh, oh, I, I forgot to mention, I was talking about uncovering the nakedness and then saying, uh, you know, do not dishonor the dishonoring was, that is their nakedness. Like, when you do this, that is their nakedness. And uh, connecting even verse 8, when it says, do not, in NIV, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, that would dishonor your father. It actually reads, you know, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So we translate that as it would dishonor him. And yes, it did. Now that's what they're talking about. And so it makes sense to translate it that way. But you kind of miss some of these connections um, if we're only reading from one translation. Here's uh, another similar. This is 2017. NIV says, If a man marries his sister, the daughter of either his father or mother, and they have sexual relations, it is a disgrace. They are to be publicly removed from their people. He has dishonored his sister and will be held responsible. Again, makes sense. Here it is in the New American Standard. If there's a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. You see the way they're talking? We have expressions like this, not just about sex. We have things like this all the time. It's, it's an idiom, right? It's a way that you talk about something where the actual thing is not what you're talking about. You're talking about something else. So, for example, if I told you that someone... Um, <laughs> that someone was pulling my leg and then later that they wouldn't stop beating a dead horse, 
And you, you would understand what I'm talking about. But imagine somebody a couple thousand years later reading that and trying to translate it into their language. They would have a very different mental picture of what's going on, wouldn't they? (laughs) Unless they understood that's just an expression. We say these things and we all know what we mean. Same thing here. When it talks about seeing someone's nakedness, this is the same uh, connection as uncovering their nakedness. And these ideas were so much connected. And then the, uh, the idea of the uncovering the mother's nakedness is the same as seeing the father's nakedness. Well, what's meant here is an incredibly dishonoring thing. And so this is why when I say those things at first, you're like, no, 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 it's not these other things. It's just a matter of he looked at Noah being naked. And you can take it that way. I think there's really a case for something more. And in fact, uh, I think this is one of those uh, cases where what's going on here is somebody trying to take what is not theirs. Right back to the Adam and Eve kind of thing. And what's happening with Ham here is that Noah is the one who is, he's the patriarch over the whole earth at this point. Who else is there, right? And so if you can uh, claim leadership in this family, if you can become the alpha male, then the whole earth bows to you. And one of the ways that people would do this when they had kind of um, disputed kingship issues uh, later on, and you see this at other parts of the Bible, where you have somebody, uh, Absalom does this with David. David's son actually uh, goes and sleeps with his father's concubines. See what I said there? I said sleeps with. That wasn't the issue, sleeping. Anyway. (laughs) But he does this as a way of uh, claiming kingship and rulership and authority over the people of Israel. And so uh, it has been argued, and I think there's a case for this. You don't have to go with it, but I think there's a case for this. That is what Ham is doing. And that the part about Noah being drunk and uh, passed out is that he cannot defend his wife when Ham makes this play for authority in the family, which at this point would be authority over the earth. You see echoes of that kind of thing all throughout the Bible, of people wanting to make a play for authority over the earth when it's not theirs. Yeah, that's kind of a thing. It also explains why Uh, and this is a confusing issue with this passage as well, is that, uh, have you ever heard of the curse of Ham? Ham being cursed by Noah, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, not a thing. (laughs) Read it closely. Ham is not cursed. Canaan is cursed. In fact, it is, and Ham has lots of other kids, but it's Canaan who's cursed. Why Canaan? Why not Ham? Ham is the one who did something, but it was Canaan. And so uh, one of the explanations for this is that Canaan is the child of Ham and Noah's wife. Uh, That is where that comes from, right? Aren't you glad you came today? Anyway. (laughs) As I mentioned, it is quite scandalous. (laughs) The Bible is not PG, by the way. So this is, uh, now think back of what we were talking about with the Adam and Eve and the 
It's the same kind of language. It's the same kind of situation. It's the taking what isn't yours. It's trying to claim authority over what is not yours to claim authority over. And then we do have this cursing, and we do have this breakdown in the family, and we do have uh, the cursing, but we do have the covering of the nakedness. And then we go on from there. And, and when we look back to the Adam and Eve story, like we, we see why the world is the way it is and the brokenness that, uh, that comes from that. And then we've just gone through the whole flood and we see the whole thing. And we go, okay, but now, now we've got a fresh start and it's going to be better. It's going to be different. And it's not, I mean, it's different, but it's the same. It's this rhyming history. We're replaying in a different way the same thing. And we still see the same brokenness. And in fact, when you think about it, you know, Moses writing this, who's he writing this to? But the people who are about to go into the promised land, who are the people who are currently in the promised land when they are receiving this? The Canaanites. And there's going to be some tension between the Israelite and the Canaanites. Which family line did the Israelites come from? Is it Shem, Ham, or Japheth? It's Shem. You ever heard of anti-Semitism or people who are anti-Semites? That's the anti-Shemites. It's those who are descended from Shem, and that is where uh, the Israelites come from. I don't have my clock today. You guys are in trouble. Um, <laughs> Where's that? <laughs> with daylight savings, we'll start with the new time and with the old time. Yes, that makes sense. I'm for it. All those in favor? Okay. <clears throat> uh, when we do, oops, I got these backwards. When we do get into uh, the genealogy part, though, this is what this is describing: is the uh, the family lines of all of them, but it's also like bringing things almost to the present day for the people who are reading it the first time. Interestingly, it doesn't give the family line of the Israelites. It gives almost everybody else. <laughs> and yet, uh, you do see things uh, like where it's talking about Nimrod, like a mighty hunter before the Lord. I'm surprised people don't still name their kid Nimrod, but perhaps that has different connotations than just being a mighty hunter these days. Um... But he goes and he starts things like uh, Babylon and Assyria. Are those names that are going to be familiar <laughs> as we go through the, uh, the rest of the biblical story? Yeah, Israelites are going to come up against Babylon and Assyria big time. We get uh, names like uh, one of Ham's descendants is Egypt. Is Egypt going to be a big part of the story? Yeah, Egypt is big. And then the Philistines. Are they going to come out? Yes. We have Sodom and Gomorrah show up in this. That's going to be a thing. And we have the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, uh, the Girgashites, the Hittites. These are the people who are living in the promised land at the time that God leads them in to take possession of the land that he promised them. And so as we read this story, it's it explains so much of what comes later on. But a big part of what it explains is 
the brokenness that still exists even after the flood. And so we saw last week, the rainbow is the sign of the covenant that God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth by flood again. We're not going back to the beginning of Genesis 1 again. We are moving this project forward, even though, even though people are still acting like people. And they are still doing things to each other that they should not do. They are still trying to grab for authorities that is not theirs to grab. They are still, uh, there's a brokenness and a division that goes through the whole thing. Here's another connection. This is uh, verse 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That is word for word how Genesis 5 was reading as we were going through all these people, and they lived so-and-so, how many years, and then they died. That whole thing. And Noah didn't have that line until now. And so the whole rest of Genesis 6 through 9 has been a part of that genealogy. And now that ends. <laughs> and we move on from there. You'll see that again and again through the book of Genesis, that the book of Genesis really is a big genealogy with a bunch of stories stuck in the middle of the genealogy. <laughs> and this is why I say don't tune out when you get to the genealogy. That's a big part of what's going on here. Explaining uh, where people came from and why things are the way they are and the reason for the division, the divisions that there are, etc. But here's uh, what's also significant, and this is going to bring it more forward for us today. One of the other passages we read today was in uh, Luke 10. And in Luke 10, it starts, Then after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every pl- town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. How many people did Jesus send out? 72, right? Does anybody in the Bible say something different? They may have a footnote. This is one of those super weird things, too. Yeah, a lot of Bibles will put either 70 or 72 and then put the other one in the footnote. What? Well, how many people was it? Either 70 or 72. <laughs> and the, uh, the deal is we actually have copies of manuscripts from way back when. Some of them say 70, some of them say 72, and which means at some point somebody changed it one way or the other, and here's what's fascinating. Is whoever did that most likely did that because they thought they were fixing a mistake that was there. Because in Genesis 10, what we were just reading, all these nations that have spread out in all the world, in the Hebrew version of Genesis 10, that totals up 70 nations. In the Greek translation of that, somehow the way the translation worked, it ended up, you could count it up to 72. And so whoever was um, correcting 
Luke here <laughs> caught the connection that Jesus is making when he's sending these people out. They knew, they didn't know necessarily what the exact number was, but they knew the connection to all the nations of the earth. That Jesus had just sent out the 12 earlier. What is the 12 representing? The 12 tribes of Israel. But now he sends out the same number, 70, 72, as the, all the nations of the earth. Because this is not a message that is just for the brokenness that exists in Israel. This is a message of reconciliation and of healing for all of the world. Luke is the same one who wrote uh, the, uh, the book of Acts. And so you can see uh, all the way through, if you start paying attention all the way through the book of Luke, he, is, he knows what happens in Acts later. And as he goes back and is uh, reflecting on all the things and talking to people about what all Jesus did, he's specifically highlighting the ways in which the message has always been, and Jesus was always about more than just Israel, but for the whole world. And that is one of these, uh, this is one of those connections. Right back to Genesis 10. So what does this mean for us? When we think about Genesis 9 and 10, and especially in light of Jesus. A couple things. One, we are still not replaying, but rhyming with the history of Genesis 9 and 10. We still have the same, um, the same issues and brokenness, and maybe it doesn't show up in the exact same way, but it still shows up in our generation too, doesn't it? the brokenness of relationships, the dishonoring of people, the grabbing for um, authority that may not be ours to grab, the doing what we know should not be done. Here I am beating a dead horse. It shows up in our generation. That's echoing. That's rhyming. And there's a division and they're uh, spreading out from each other. An isolation as though if we just had enough space, then we could all get along. And so we isolate. But there's a different echo that is to be part of the people of God. And that is the echo from Luke 10 of Jesus sending out his own represent representatives into this broken world to bring a message of healing and reconciliation. And saying the brokenness of Genesis 9 and 10 is not the end of the story. But the kingdom of God is near. There is a, um, a line that we sing at Christmas time every year, although it's actually about the second coming of Jesus. The song is Joy to the World. And the line is... Um, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. I forgot anyway. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Is this talking about the curse from Genesis 3? Is this talking about Noah's curse? Whichever. <laughs> yes to all. <laughs> all the curse. All the brokenness all the heartache, all the sorrows 
are to be undone. He comes to make his blessings flow. This is good news. This is what Jesus sends his representatives out in the world to share. Now, in our generation, do we echo that story as well? Do we rhyme with that story? Maybe not 70 or 72 of us going out into all the towns throughout Israel. But all the people, all the people who call themselves Christians going out into all the world, preaching the good news of Jesus to all who need to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for the good news of Jesus. Lord, we recognize our own um, brokenness. We recognize the ways in which we have contributed to the brokenness of this world. We often want to um, ignore the brokenness that we cause. We want to justify it and try to make it seem as though we were really in the right when we know deep down we were not. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in him that is total and complete, knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for the ministry of reconciliation that you have given to us. That as ambassadors for Jesus, we have not only the responsibility, but the privilege of sharing this good news with all the broken and hurting people. Or we know what it's like to be broken and hurting. And we know what it's like to receive uh, your healing forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you would remind us daily of the grace we have received. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to share this grace with the world. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.